What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I'm your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously, both in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Welcome to the show. Have you ever found yourself in a really difficult situation where you are struggling to find any kind of solution that makes any sense or that seems even remotely acceptable given the circumstances? Um, A situation where you feel like you've dug such a deep hole for yourself that in the process of doing so, you've let your own loved ones, your family down. Well, my guest this week is gonna share his story in which he felt very much this way. This is a story where a deal that he got involved in and was very much driving uh, went sideways. And in the process of going sideways, the bank that was going to finance it um, had personal guarantees. And what's worse about this is just how promising the project looked like from the outset. I mean, you're talking big, big sums and it looked like it was going to be a fabulous result. And then suddenly to find yourself not only not achieving that fantastic result, but being on the complete opposite end where everything is going very badly out of shape. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. And my guest this week is a gentleman by the name Zaf Banu. And Zaf is based in London. And he has this fantastic story that I think is going to resonate with a lot of you. A lot of people out there struggling with interest rates, with banks, with all that stuff. And so I do think this story is going to hit a chord with a number of you. And um, it certainly did with me. And you guys know my story. Uh, Funnily enough, I actually began this sort of conversation very much of the view that it was going to center around co-living. Zaf is a real expert in the co-living area and that is in my opinion a very interesting aspect of the housing market. It's a new area, well it's it's not that new but as a concept it seems to be kind of uh, you know there seems to be a broad appeal there and it seems to be accepted now by a number of planning authorities. So this is an interesting area and I felt this conversation was going to go in that direction um, because I do feel like co-living may be a very good way of solving at least some of the problems that are going on in the housing sector. And we are all acutely aware of the housing crisis that we're in. So ironically, the conversation steered quite quite far away from co-living. Now we do touch on it, but towards the end. And really, I think it's the beginning of this story that is going to resonate much uh, the most. And so, guys, uh, without further ado, my conversation with Mr. Zaf Banu. Zaf Banu, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Gavin. Real pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Not at all, Zaf. It's great to have you on. And uh, that is an unusual surname. Um, why don't we just start with where where does that come from? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the surname itself is actually has its origins in Mauritius. Uh, and so my father is a Mauritian man. He came to the UK when he was about 14 years old. And, uh, you know, the, the Banu family has a sort of long history um, as indentured laborers that actually went to Mauritius on the boats in, in India, to, from India 
several you know several centuries ago so it's a really interesting long history and uh you know continuing that tradition of immigration my father came over to the uk when he was 14 so i am london born and bred um yeah interesting interesting um tell me this zav i always like to give a little bit of context before our conversation like we're talking about a lot of different things today but co-living is your area of kind of expertise that's right so we will most definitely be going into that but before we do just let's open up the conversation with a little bit of backstory i mean obviously you've talked about your your father and stuff there but like what does how does a young man get into the property industry um you know tell us how you kind of ended up in real estate yeah absolutely i mean it was a really interesting journey and certainly not one that i designed if i'm completely honest and you know when i started out at university it's probably a good place to start i went to loughborough university and um choosing what subject i wanted to, to study I, I landed with physics, uh, which might make a lot of people cringe. And the real honest reason I chose that, Gavin, was to give me options. Um, I didn't have a particularly compelling desire to become a lawyer or a doctor that most Asian parents want their kids to be. And so I was looking for choices. And so physics was why I chose. When I came back to London after I graduated, I was really stuck because I would go into job fairs. And a lot of people were saying that I either didn't have the right experience or I was not qualified. And it was honestly by sheer chance that I stumbled across a, a company who was promoting their project management work stream. And I thought, okay, this sounds interesting. So let me let me understand a bit more about this. And it was working with people, coordinating teams, being creative and delivering buildings. And so, okay, this, is, this looks really interesting. So let me do a bit of a deep dive into the world of project management and property. And um, it just seemed to tick a lot of boxes for me. And one of the, the major boxes that um, was ticked was this idea of creating legacy and create and having a hand into the built environment, which we all interact with. And I think whether we are conscious of it or not, everyone interacts with the built environment, whether it's where they sit to study, to work, to live, to play, uh, to walk around, to shop. So having an ability to be part of that ecosystem was quite exciting for me. And, um, you know, having a father as an immigrant and, and a mother as an immigrant, they obviously made strong choices and difficult choices to come over to the UK to, you know, give their kids a better opportunity for the future. So I thought it was almost incumbent on me to try and do the same and work in an industry where I could leave the world a better place than the one than, than how I found it. So I was compelled to really get involved in the real estate space. But as I went through sort of job applications, I found that I just didn't have the right experience. And um, it was a real catch 22 that I wanted to be involved, but I didn't have the experience and no one would give me a shot. And so I, uh, I actually reached out to a community developer. And it was actually a guy through my religious community who was going around the country and using sort of charitable donations to build community centers and mosques and, and sports halls. And I asked him, hey, can I shadow you for a few months just to understand the lingo, what it's like to be on site? And I did that for about six to nine months. So um, effectively kind of like a, an internship type thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it was, you know, so I, I sort of put myself into that space where I could just pick up as much as as possible um and it was really quite exciting um so when i when i 
acquired that experience as an intern as as an as a volunteer in a voluntary capacity and then I made my next application the company I applied for was M3 Consulting what they saw in me was labeled as a non-cognate graduate because I had done a degree which wasn't directly related to real estate I was amongst a pool of other young graduates who all had sort of project management construction management real estate finance degrees and I thought I don't really stand a chance against these guys but the thing that really stood out for me, and I found this out obviously after the interview process, was I was one of the only people who had actually gone out on my own to try and lean into what I found to be passionate and interesting. And, and it was that that got me through. And it was more about, it was that was one of my, and I didn't realize this at the time, you know, as a 20 something year old, you know, you know very green, uh, wet behind the ears, as they say, um, I, I didn't realize just how much importance they had placed on the values and the acumen that I demonstrated to actually be interested in in the real estate because actually everyone can be taught competence but you can't be taught values and and and, and passion to have an interest. And drive. I think that's really uh, insightful Zaf because I'm just I wrote a few notes while you were saying it and the first thing uh, that pops into my mind is is like going out and choosing to shadow somebody, you know, unpaid for, uh, you know, six to nine months, that speaks of a kind of a seriousness about getting into it. Whereas a lot of people would have done a property degree mm -hmm. and they're kind of thinking to themselves, right, show me the money. Like, where's the money I, that, I, that I've heard all about, about the property industry? And that's... Okay. There's not a, a passion there to kind of actually go out and figure it out. The second thing, and it's funny because I'm in the office sector, this yeah. immediately like resonates with me. But what you said, the fact that six to nine months being with this guy, shadowing him just was enough for you to absorb his knowledge and, and pick up enough bits and pieces that suddenly you're able to go in and you know, stand shoulder to sh shoulder against other graduates have done years and it speaks to the fact that there's no alternative like work from home and all that kind of stuff there yeah. is no alternative to going out there and actually being just absorbing knowledge from more experienced people by being beside them and next to them and overhearing their conversations and their phone calls and stuff and the amount of people that are you know they want this oh, i want to work from home and stuff and the reality is is that you just won't pick up the no. same level of intellect and insight from from that uh, absolutely and and again i would love to say this was by design but it, it it wasn't and it was only in hindsight looking back and actually putting myself in those environments that i was able to absorb and and i started to understand very quickly that actually you learn so much throughout the process of osmosis you know being in the environment as you rightly say gavin yes. when you're surrounded by people who've got you know several years more experience than you and just overhearing the conversations and picking up on various bits and, and most people let's be honest most people have an element of narcissism and they love to talk about what they do and and no one likes it more when you ask a question actually i heard you talking about x y and z maybe it's a commercially sensitive matter and if it is they'll tell you respectfully but most people are very open to saying actually if you're interested i'm happy to spend 15 minutes talking to you about that particular matter and so it was really just learning to start to be uncomfortable and ask the questions and i remember when eventually i got the role with m3 consulting and i was i was absolutely blown away that i was the only individual who, who who landed that and I and I hasten to add that it was right at the height uh just as the the GFC the global financial crisis was starting to 
burgeon and it was just wow. i remember the md uh, in the final interview said look i'm really not sure what's going to happen over the next sort of two quarters and he was a real sort of you know macroeconomic nerd shall we say he loved yeah. to check the numbers and so i but i also appreciated that level of candor um, because i kind of knew what i was going into and at the time, uh, you know, after four months, I had to take a, a short period of sabbatical because actually the GFC hit so hard and they were forced to sort of restructure. I'm, I'm happy to say that I was able to come back into the organization after, after a short hiatus. But, you know, I knew what I was going into. And, and I'm so grateful for that because it almost sharpened the value even more so because it was like that fragility that everyone was in going through that global financial crisis. And, you know, I'm fortunate that that notwithstanding present day was the the only sort of major sort of economic downturn that I've, I've had to endure. Look at you. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, this is like the third that I can, uh, or actually I can remember four. I, I, I'm old enough now to remember, although I was quite young at the time, but I remember the 1989 crash um, it was the currency crisis and next minute interest rates shot up to like 50% overnight Gosh. and it was just absolute chaos. And I can remember speaking to people five years later, um, there was a chap who came to work in the, in the architectural firm that I was working in mm -hmm. and he had a, a home in England that he was unable to sell because it was still in negative equity five years after the crash okay. and um and so he was just like he had rented it out and he was basically just paying the mortgage and he wasn't unable to get out of it because he still had negative equity in the deal so um and that was his own scary home time. as opposed to you know people investing yeah scary um, and, and Zaf, one thing that just stands out because I, I had a quick look at your linkedin profile and when i was yeah. looking at it i was kind of saying wow Development Manager, M3 Consulting, Development Manager, Blackstone Group, Head of Development at Spaces. Uh, like it's, you know, the fact that you did that internship that got you into M3, it really set your career on a on a really clear path because it really did. I mean, for me, when I saw your 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 LinkedIn, I was saying, wow, there's a career that like there, there is like a resume that's been written professionally, like really well written. <laughs> And then you're telling me that you don't even have a degree in property. And so this is actually something that has been designed effectively by you doing that internship. Yeah. So it's, yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing where, yeah, that starting that jumping off point is and where it can potentially go. And it's certainly not been without its challenges. And, you know, I'm, I'm super, super grateful for the nurturing of the early stages of my career that M3 provided me with whether it was the various projects I was exposed to, the people I was exposed to um, within the organization and outside of the organization, um, huge, huge amounts of value. And, you know, they also sponsored me through my uh, real estate um, qualifications. So I got a postgraduate diploma in surveying from the University of Reading at the time or the College of Estate Management, as it was called. And then they uh, supported me through my RSCS qualifications to become a chartered surveyor in, in the project management work stream. So all of that was was great to then become, I guess, you know, be recognized in, in the trade, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. No, that's brilliant. And tell me this, uh, Blackstone. Black, Blackstone a, is a massive, you know, sort of global business. What was it like to work in there? It was, it was an amazing opportunity and um, one that I... If I'm really honest with you, I, I didn't chase initially because 
Um, and, and this is one of the things that when I have young people that sort of ask for advice, you know, I think becoming the person or focusing on being the person who then attracts the opportunity is more valuable than chasing the opportunity. There is there is obviously nuances to that. And essentially, the, the reason I say that, Gavin, is I, I was working at, at M3 for Blackstone in the consultancy capacity. We were working on a couple of different projects. And um, as Blackstone were going through a growth spurt and in their real, one of their real estate arms in London, and they were an active client of mine, and they said, you know, there's an opportunity. Would you be interested in in a role? And absolutely, naturally, I jumped to the chance, but I, I wasn't chasing it. And it was, it was a phenomenal opportunity to be recognized for what I'd put in to my time at M3. And extremely grateful, obviously, again, to jump off at that point. But working in that organization was the best words I can come up with. It was high octane. Yeah. The, the, the scale of the projects I was working on were just phenomenal. I mean, I um, <clears throat> went through to sort of assess the overall development value of the projects that I had a hand in certainly wasn't the sole lead on them, but, you know, it, it totals somewhere in the region of about 1.5 billion of assets across, you know, London, Ireland, uh, Spain, Luxembourg, and, and a whole host of different project typologies, everything from marinas, marinas to office campuses, to student accommodation, uh, business parks is a real mix of different things and you know there was also a level of autonomy that was expected of me which is great because it enabled me to really really step up and level up in terms of my competence in terms of my belief in myself uh, to deliver on projects um, so it was great and you know let's be honest who doesn't love being in the client seat uh, so it was great nice. to to have that and it was you know a phenomenal mark in in my cv to have uh, to enable me to move on in terms of like the one, one of the, and, and you've kind of hit it on, on the head there a little bit, the um, like when you join a massive, massive group like that, one of the negative sides to it, I guess, could be the fact that you're only seeing a very, very narrow amount of the business. Whereas yeah. obviously if you joined a small firm, you get to see everything. Like, do, did you find that that was uh, like that that you got good insights from that or did you feel like that you were lacking some of the bigger wider stuff to be able to do your own thing that's no, a great question i think honestly speaking and if one were to look at my resume the time i spent at blackstone wasn't particularly long it was you know circa two years and there are reasons for that and i think part of it is because you were one part of a massive machine um you had your role to play and and that was that was okay I did my best to sort of get acquainted with the various parts of the property division that I was part of to understand all of the the finance functions, the asset management functions, and so on and so forth. And then the understanding the sort of core Blackstone machine, if you will, that sort of was was uh, office based in uh, Barclay Square, and trying to understand the various moving parts there. But it was it was very much how much time can I go and spend with those individuals as opposed to by the way, this is what we do. So I had to really sort of go out to try and find out, you know, what else was going on, um, you know, maybe stop people in their tracks as they're walking through the office to sort of pick their brains on various bits. And that was useful to do. And it was, I'm grateful to be in that environment, to have been in that environment, but, you know, to, to be completely honest about where I was, Gavin, and you're absolutely right. That coupled with the cultural experience I had was ultimately led to me leaving Blackstone and nurturing the position where I effectively came on board and, and co-founded the spaces developments um, side of the business with my cousin. 
Right. And, and and we're going to get into that now. I mean, yeah. I, the, the first thing I wanted to kind of clarify when I saw spaces, because I've actually been speaking with IWG group. Ah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and, a, and they have a, a brand called spaces and it's, a, that's right. It's unrelated. I presume. It's unrelated, unrelated and funny story. We, you know, spaces actually in the spaces that I was a part of actually was founded before IWG spaces works or spaces um and we at one point actually got a cease and desist from, oh, really? <laughs> from IWG but we were able to prove obviously we didn't have the legal clout to go into battle with them but we wrote a few cleverly worded letters um and actually requested a, an audience with with Mark at, at a point in time for on the basis Mark of Dixon, invest, yeah. Mark Dixon <laughs> on the basis of uh investment or mentorship that me and my cousin requested that we, we, we then rebranded to spaces life at a later stage. Right. But uh, it, was, it was quite amusing as it was running for a period of time. So tell, tell us about, so spaces was something that you found with your, with your cousin. With my cousin. So spaces, the original version of spaces was actually founded by my cousin, by my cousin in 20, 2006. And he had spotted an opportunity in real estate where, you could effectively uh, provide a better quality level of rental accommodation without having to spend thousands, hundreds of thousands of pounds by making sensible tweaks to the underlying quality of a property. And he had uh, unlocked effectively a lease arbitrage model where he was leasing in at a one, at one rate with his landlords and then leasing back out at a, at a sort of retail rate to, on a room, room by room basis. So it was branded HMOs. So, and uh, like it was a rent to rent model, basically. It was a rent to rent model, uh, branded HMOs, and he grew that to a fairly sizable portfolio by the time he and I reconnected. Uh, big families, big Mauritian families, and we'd sort of spent years apart and uh, saw through the the wonders of social media that both of us were still in the game of property. So we we connected one, one fateful summer, 2015. Uh, met up in London Bridge for a coffee and I was like hey Shaz what are you up to um, he told me what he'd been doing with his time and actually he had uh, some property particulars in his hand and he was going to view a site and I you know told him what I'd been doing as well where I was at the time still working at Blackstone I said look it'd be interesting you know I'll come down and have a look at the site with you and before long we were sort of batting ideas around about what we could do with this asset and it was an office building just just uh, by London Bridge and uh, then we started to say, okay, you know, maybe we can model this up. We can design. I've got some great contacts in the architect space. You know, they could look at this for us and we can design what we at the time hadn't really co coined the phase. And obviously there were other players in the market doing it, but early versions of purpose-built co-living. And this right. was in early, you know, mid, mid 2015 before it really became, you know, what it is today. And so, yeah, we went on that journey together and we thought, okay, we come up with this business plan. We can raise some investment. This would be really fun to do. And, you know, we, we'd sort of run on this journey of creating sort of purpose-driven community. And we've got the operational experience given what spaces the, the operating platform had been doing for so many years. And so, yeah, it was the combination of his operational experience, his business acumen as well. And he'd been, you know, had a successful journey through um, the tech incubator space with Y Combinator and various other business organizations. And then combining my sort of institutional development experience and putting that together. And that's what we created. That's really interesting. And and how did it go? I mean, did you, <laughs> is that, is that the, are we, <laughs> are we getting into a sort of scary territory going into? Yeah. That? I mean, I mean, this is, dare I say, where, and there were plenty of, obviously my career up to this point had, had left plenty of nuggets for growth and learning. 
but none as great as what I was about to experience on the journey with Spaces. So just uh, winding forward a few years after I'd left Blackstone, come on board fully with my cousin, shareholders in this new new venture together, managed to raise the money, which was an incredible feat in its own right, you know, um, to raise 20 million pounds to buy this asset, to raise some capital to take it through planning. And um, we had a sound strategy. But one thing that we didn't really appreciate was the fact that the stakeholder market, i.e. the planners, the capital markets didn't really know what co-living was. And, um, you know, pioneer. we were, yeah, pioneer, I think is a, is a fair, is a fair description. You know, there was maybe three or four other companies out there trying it at the same time, you know, most notably the collective, they were doing a great job with, with their journey. And so we ran into a lot of tra- tra- challenges and troubles. Um, long story short, Gavin, we didn't get planning permission for the site that we bought. Uh, we were on a very expensive bridge facility. So that's obviously a facility to to hold the land. It was a going concern. So there was a level of income from the asset itself. And I was doing the asset management, but it wasn't enough to cover the cost of the debt itself. And then it was originally a 12-month facility, which we then managed to extend for a further six after the delays came in. But then after that initial six, you're 18 months in. We need to service the day. It's starting to get a bit squeaky at this point in time. And I was one of four directors. Um, so there was two on the spaces side and two from one of the other equity investors side. And they um, and we'd all put our names down as personal guarantors. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Painful. Maybe a sharp intake of breath from, from people who are listening. But um, the total facility that we had um, agreed to sort of guarantee was 12 and a half million pounds between the four of us. Um, and the total value was 10 million on guarantee. So my share was two and a half million pounds and I didn't have the A&L to support a two and a half million pound PG, but obviously you're young and you're, you're energetic, you're enthusiastic, you think you're invincible and you don't think that PG is ever going to get called in. And also the, the lender at the time, you know, very, oh, we've never called in a PG. It's always been fine. We like to work with our borrowers. Of course. Yeah, Great. Yeah. Until. Yeah. Yeah, until, until it stops. Yeah, until it, <laughs> it stops, stops working. Yeah. And so 18 months in, things are very squeaky. We're struggling to be able to finance this and pay the in the interest on a monthly basis, which was running at about 160,000 a month wow. of interest. And bearing in mind the development business wasn't generating any capital. You know, the the operating business was doing its thing. So it was tough. It was really painful. You know, when you're trying to raise money and trying to find an exit, yeah. it's just you can't think, you can't breathe. Yeah. And yeah. So it's, I, I a, remember, yeah. There's a sort of a scarcity mindset that takes over. Massively so, massively yeah. so. And you, you know, there's lots of great commentators, business commentators that that talk about free, freeing up bandwidth, mental bandwidth, and capacity to be able to do the thing that you want to do. But when you are unsure if you can, you know, meet your liabilities at the end of every month becomes challenging to do. And I remember I was at home one day um, and I received a special delivery. Now, I remember this very, very clearly. And my wife at home with me, she never takes an interest in what my, uh, you know, what what mail I get. And just so happens that she asked, oh, what did you get? You know, this special delivery. So I opened the letter in front of her and it is, dear Mr. Banu, we are putting your personal guarantee on notice. You and me. To the value of two and a half million. And you know, I mean, at that moment in time, I would have would have loved for the world to have opened up and swallowed me up inside. That's how I felt. You know, there's so many 
moments and emotions at that moment in time and it was just and by the way i hadn't told my wife oh dear yeah that... i hadn't told my wife um as you can as you can probably imagine that didn't go down too well and and this was one of the first ugly and painful lessons about communication as simple as it sounds but it was really quite profound um anyway to to try and round off what happened with that i i went in to the lenders and i decided to do everything that um we're, we're told not to do go in and, and basically try to negotiate with them in a way that was very creative shall we say and i managed the relationship for a further six months to keep the wolves at the door so to speak and was able to find an exit fortunately we sold the property um the value for the senior facility was paid back it broke in the mezzanine which means basically the mezzanine didn't get fully repaid i think they maybe got to have 60p in the pound all the equity was wiped out and it was not not a pleasant experience um yeah, yeah. and it didn't really end there unfortunately um the the mezzanine lenders they uh, they decided to come after me for professional negligence um so it wasn't bad enough that we had sort of escaped death i was able to keep me you know, the shirt on my back as it were i didn't lose my property didn't lose my home managed to find an exit for everyone involved but then i was being effectively sued for professional negligence the the business at this point in time the development business was going through a process of liquidation so those that are familiar with it with it will understand that's obviously handed to an administrator and there are certain rules by the court that they need to adhere to it's, it's taken out of out of the hands of the directors and so the administrator was duty bound to hear this professional negligence claim. And I remember going into the administrator's meeting, they had a, a professional witness to go through all the documentation and, you know, you take your mini victories where you can. Right. And I came out of that sort of two hour meeting really they were found that I had done nothing wrong. I had acted fully within the bounds of my professional capacity. I had done nothing negligent. In fact, I had done probably more than what would have been expected by an ordinary development manager and a director. I had abided by all my fiduciary duties and it was a mini victory for me. But obviously, given the context of where we were and what we'd gone through, it didn't really feel like that. Yeah, yeah. Very difficult. And has this colored your view of the property market? I mean, if we just, I mean, obviously it has, but from the point of view of, if you can kind of just take us to your mindset before all of that started to now, I mean, because I, I, I know a lot of young people look at property investing and they see it as this kind of panacea of, you know, I'll be rich and I'll have a great, you know, lifestyle and stuff. And you've, you've experienced some of the negative stuff that I talk about on this podcast. Yeah. And so if you can just give us when you were starting the process of buying that property for 20 million and it looked like what like what did you think you were going to make in order to you know justify taking those risks of course and and that's it you get very fixated on the end potential value so the the value that we thought we were going to create was kind of twofold number one was i think we had probably our share of the upside of the upshare of the profit even post planning was somewhere in the order of two million pounds each. Each that's yeah. a that's a significant uplift um, because we were able to take the asset value from I think twenty million pre planning to maybe thirty five post planning. So there's a big delta, and then if you bring in great development finance at that stage, you can then 
potentially pay down some equity or you can just keep it as paper value so that that was kind of you know blinded us shall we say and the second was the idea of being one of the first if not the first company to get a co-living consent in london yeah. and to be one of the pioneers in this new sector that would be the future of living um and i think you know this was around the same sort of time that you saw the likes of we work exploding yeah. in their global growth and domination in the co-working space and you thought that's really cool that's really exciting i want a piece of that you know i want to be able to grow and scale as quickly as them obviously very different model very different market but you you then enter this kind of world of comparison and like, if they can do it, I can do it. Yeah. And what you don't learn, what most people didn't know, many people do now is obviously, you know, say what you will about Adam Newman, you know, I think he, he did a phenomenal job with the, with the company, but it was his fourth or fifth venture. Mm, and so yeah. he learned, you know, irrespective of how he conducted himself through business, but he learned. And this for me personally speaking was my first. So I still had a lot of very expensive mistakes to learn. So I think it's it's important, you know, to sort of turn this on, a head, on its head slightly. If there's anyone who's excited by that or, or scared by it, I think it's important to surround yourself with people who've been there, done that. And that's one of the things we didn't do well yeah. enough. We didn't surround ourselves with either investors that had the same you know, level of experience or the same level of acumen in terms of what we were about to you know go on or embark on. And that could have been in a relevant sector say student accommodation because that's you know 15 years it's senior for co-living they've gone through the, those trials and tribulations of establishing an asset class we didn't surround ourselves with advisors that would have been you know could have pointed out the structuring of the deal the structuring of the capital stack that would have made a, a massive difference and how to protect ourselves we could have done that those and again when you are young and you've you've almost in disbelief that you've got this asset in your hands and you, you know, we did a lot to sort of shout about it. Don't, don't get me wrong, but actually it's, there's no substance there. There was no substance. Yeah. It's easy to say that retrospectively, but at the time you felt the top of the world and everything was going great. And like, ironically, as we're just having this conversation, I see that we work filed for bankruptcy yesterday or something like That's that. Right. So it's just like the comparison that you're using. It's, it's kind of interesting um, I mean, having uh, like all of the mistakes I made in my career were made because I didn't have that guidance from somebody with, you know, more experience, a little bit more of a level head. And, Perfect. you know, somebody as 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 I've heard them, <laughs> as I'm now the guy with the gray hair, but <laughs> I, I was always it was always described as you need a couple of gray hairs on the board. Yeah. And uh, really uh, yeah. Yeah. And so tell us, I mean, like leaving, leaving behind, uh, you know, the difficulties and things like that, but yeah. you've, you've obviously, you, you've had a big experience there. It's been, you know, it, this is going to, this is going to, it, to a degree, it's going to scar you, um, yeah. but also it's going to be an asset going forward in terms of totally. just knowing uh, what you know now and, and how to protect the downside and, never make an assumption that is without any kind of a potential negative scenario as a, as a kind of an alternative. Absolutely. Um, what, what are some of the insights, uh, you know, that you would take away and you would recommend to other people out there that are thinking of jumping into something that's kind of seems like a stretch for them. I think, um, 
it's really important to to really get people to check your homework for want of a better phrase and i think um at the time that we were doing london bridge as a project was called and and even subsequent projects in other businesses what we what we applied at balance out living for example which is the last business that i set up we really wanted to make sure that our assumptions were stress tested and i think that's so so important um there's always you know when you are working to acquire projects and i and i use this term very very carefully that you often often feel like you don't have enough time you know it's either the deal of the century and so you've got to move quickly but time is one of the most difficult things to manage on a project and i would always implore those getting into projects to allow sufficient time to do your due diligence to make sure you're setting up your strategies correctly um to mitigate your downside as much as possible and um yeah get get your get your numbers stress tested as opposed to let's say if i'm putting together a, a model of financial appraisal i'm not just going to look at benchmark data that's if i really want to make it look great yeah i'll just rely on benchmark data oh so and so is building it up the road for you know 300 pounds a square foot so i i can do it better for 270 pounds a square foot of, or whatever it may be yeah. i'll get that tested properly by one two maybe three different sources of data where are the big things that are going to move and really understanding at the time and i don't want this to sound like an excuse the capital markets associated with you know the the product that we were trying to create just didn't really exist and yeah. i honestly hand on heart couldn't look back and tell you i spoke to any of the big four advisories so the you know the knight franks the savills jll's of the world didn't speak to any of those guys about understanding where this could go when you had those conversations yeah, yeah what was, what was the exit? exit yeah and i think it's important to start with the end in mind understand what it is you try to create and how do you back solve to to create that and so i think that would always be you know big big advice um you know a lot of people even now i'm very actively seeking um mentors and advisors people who've got more gray hair than me um and, and this is one of the first things they start with like what's the exit and what's the downside let's look at the worst case scenario and as an entrepreneur as a creator you know most entrepreneurs are creatives at heart and they often found the reason they are you know they're going to be unique in their specific areas because they found a business strategy or an idea that is unique to them and so to then take that idea and, and actually try and really poke holes in it potentially you can take it quite personally yeah I was just going to say that. Yeah. yeah I've just don't... written down like yeah. th th what you're, what you're saying, it makes such sense, but so for most people, it also is extremely frustrating oh, at the idea that this baby of yours, that you've kind of come up with this <laughs> idea and everything. And then you're going to say to somebody, what do you think, you know, and you're hoping that they'll come back and say, wow, man, you're amazing. Like you're, you're, you're phenomenal. You're so out there. And, and then instead you might get something like, I don't really see it working. You know, uh, how are you going to exit from it? And you'd be like, you just don't get it. You know no, what I mean? This exactly. is the attitude that a lot of people have. Totally. And, and I think that's, you need to almost invite the conversation. Like, tell me where it's going to go wrong, please. Tell me like poke holes. And those that will, you know, be 
yes men and women are not going to add value to you you want the people who are going to be the pessimists that are really going to poke holes and say actually i don't think it's going to work because of xyz reason then you can go away and you can figure out how do you deal with xyz reason these are my mitigating measures this is what i can do and that applies to everything in life i think it's really important you know whether it's you know starting a property business or or any other business like help me pick holes and tell me how this is going to fail yeah. So it's I can so, figure out. It's, it's so important. I, mean, I I can tell you the the deal that went worst for me, I was speaking to one of my cousins who I work with about it. And I can remember saying, what do you think? And he goes, it's really interesting. He says, I'm not sure if you'll make any money on it. I think possibly the people who will make money on it are the next people that you sell it to. No. And I did not want to hear that. Like I was not. like, you don't know anything like you don't know what I, I, I and the reality is is he was absolutely right the guys ended up buying this thing off me at a fraction of the value that i paid for it and of course they've turned it into a success you know and so it's it's frustrating uh but it's very telling that you'll get sometimes the advice you don't want to hear is the advice you need to listen to absolutely absolutely and i think it's you know one of the things i, I would implore anyone starting a venture or even buying a new project is seek out the advice you don't want to hear yeah because that's really where the value is you know you know nobody there's no point in going to seek sort of what what's the term uh positive bias yeah that's it well the thing is is that like this i talk about cognitive bias so often and and there's so much of it out there that you you just you're completely blind to it and you need people that are going to kind of like open your eyes and, and kind of and the, and the reality is, is like I say, a lot of the time you're not going to want to hear it or you're going to view their advice as as kind of like negative or critical as opposed to seeing it for valuable insight. That um, And so it's just having an open mind. I, I, I read a lot of stoicism in the morning. Yeah. I have this book, The Daily Stoic. I read every morning a page of it. Yeah. And it's a brilliant book. But what it does is it just makes you realize like that there's, the stuff that's going to happen in your life that you have no control over whatsoever. And you just have to accept that. Yep. And, uh, and once, and I think people, they, they fail to remember that and they think that they're going to build this career that's completely controlled. They'll never see a negative downturn. You know, right. everyone else out there who's experienced a downturn. Well, I'll be the one that sidesteps the downturn and never sees it coming, you know? Yeah. So tell us this, um, Zaf, after going through the extraordinary stress and all that kind of stuff, like give us some, I mean, I I did a talk recently, how you and I came to know each other. I gave a talk on resilience and I'm curious to know, I mean, obviously uh, my talk, perhaps it resonated with you, but some of the takeaways from your experience, I mean, how do you move forward now? How do you deal with stress? What's an important way of dealing with the challenges i mean obviously you have your personal issues with your wife that you've had to try to kind of deal with but also there's the financial stuff as well you know tell us how you're dealing with all of that yeah i mean it's been it's been a journey for sure um and and you're absolutely right kevin this is one of the things that when you when you when i heard you speak it really resonated with me and and just to sort of wind back a little for a little context you know the it would have been 2018 late 2018 early 2019 and I had I felt very torn in my life um I was still 
you know, trying to do right by my family, my wife, my business partner at the time. And I, I couldn't, it felt like I couldn't really satisfy any of these parties. And, and I actually felt um, suicidal. I was in a really bad state of mental health. And, you know, culturally speaking, the idea of mental health, whilst it has become a lot more sort of socially acceptable to talk about it, which is incredible, you know, in certain subsets of society and certain religions and cultures, it's still very taboo. And so, you know, that's the kind of programming that I've had growing up. But I was at a point where I was, I was standing on the edge, you know, not quite literally, but very much emotionally. And so I sought out help. I sought out psychotherapy and I really sort of tried to double down on my mental health and my personal growth and development. And, and that's really been a real mainstay in my life for a long, long time, because, you know, fortunately, you know, I'm obviously sitting here talking here today. I, I didn't take any drastic steps and, but it really taught, taught me just how vulnerable and how fragile the mind and the body can be if we don't address what's going on, you know, deep down in our subconscious and we're being controlled by external factors and, you know, giving away our power and whatever it may be. And so, yeah, it's been a real journey of, of building up a set of tools for, you know, to, to be resilient. Um, and that's been a mixture of, you know, one-to-one -one talking therapies, group therapies, events like Tony Robbins, Unleashing the Power Within, affirmations. I do now daily meditations, breath work, cold exposure, all of which have been proven, scientifically proven to really help the body in terms of settling levels of you know, your cortisol, you know, bringing your baselines back down, also tapping into your levels of subconscious. And I think, you know, this idea that I think a lot of people I talk to about the idea of mental health and um, meditation specifically, more often than not, nine times out of 10, people say, actually, they just can't stick with it. They can't sit with it. They get very distracted very easily and their minds tend to wander. And so, you know, I think that's, um, it's one of those things, it's consistency. Whatever you do, you have to be consistent at and then that that's a really important part of making sure that if you're you know building a business or um you know you're you're starting another venture or whatever or, or just you know continuing the same job that you're in at the moment in, in at the moment it's being consistent it's showing up on a daily basis and making sure that you're putting in the time to make sure your knife is is as sharp as it possibly can be stephen covey talks about you know seven habits of highly effective people and one of them is sharpening the knife and you've really got to take the time to do that. Otherwise, you do feel like that blade becomes blunt over a period of time. Yeah. So that's that's one of the things that's been really important to me. And it's helped me really sort of improve the quality of the relationships in my life, both personally and professionally. You know, it's allowed me to have difficult conversations and be vulnerable with people that has really unlocked a new, completely new layer of opportunity for me to the point where now I'm very, you know, I... I I don't have a, a catchphrase, but I, I certainly would be saying that vulnerability, my vulnerability is my superpower. And that's yeah. been a huge thing for me, whether that's been, you know, asking for new investment for new opportunities to progress my career, to progress my business, whether that's, you know, looking for partnerships um, and also the power of being able to say no and stand in, in, in a place that actually the business structure that's being proposed in front of me is not right for me. It doesn't align with my values. And it's really something that um, it needs to be, it needs to be tweaked and adjusted 
so that it does align with me. And I think there is a power that comes with that, that I, if I hadn't gone through those difficult moments in my early stages of entrepreneurship that I probably wouldn't have. And so despite the pain that they caused me and the scars that I, you know, and the bruises that I bore going through those processes, I'm so incredibly grateful for them because they've taught me so much to become a lot more gracious and grateful um, to be able to be chiseled in this way, not physically speaking, mentally <laughs> speaking, um, to have that level of resilience and grit. Um, and yeah. I think you're right, you know, even small practices like reading the Daily Stoic is is so important because it just reframes everything, you know, and there's there's so many things that are going on in the world at the moment, you know, conflicts happening all over the place. And it's really about focusing on what you can do and how do you move the needle? How do you affect that 1% in your own life that's going to make the world a better place? And mm -hmm. getting super, super clear on your the values that you bring to the table and I almost go back to that sort of 20 something year old who was trying to get into real estate, you know, all those years ago. And what was it that really sort of made me bright eye and bushy tailed? And it was about this idea of doing something to benefit the lives of other people. It wasn't about making money. Of course, making money is a fantastic byproduct of everything you do, but it's about living close to your values and being vulnerable. Um, so, yeah, it's been great to almost go 360 on that and sort of continue to double down on my sort of mental health and personal development to really help me um, move forward. Yeah, that's very insightful stuff. Um, what I'm going to do now is we, we, we mentioned at the outset that you're an expert in co-living and I think it would be uh, a mistake not to go into some of that and actually of tap course. into some of that expertise. I mean, we have in, in this country here in Ireland, and I believe in the UK as well, we have housing shortages that are you know verging on crisis levels certainly yeah. here in this country and co-living is a kind of promises a, a greater density um for a, a site and so can you tell us you know why have you gone down the road of looking at co-living so closely and and how does it compare with your standard you know uh, apartment development we'll say yeah i think um so one of the things that really attracted me at the outset to the idea of co-living was the idea of community, fundamentally. I think people often forget, and now co-living as a term has become so sort of, it just it's become a household term, should we say. But actually, people forget what the co in co-living stands for. It's this community, it's collaborative, it's you know collective living, it's people living together. And I think, um, again, just just focusing back on the mental health side of things for a moment one of the major traits of the longest standing and the most healthiest communities in the world is this connection that people have and so i think co-living provides that as an opportunity for people who have moved beyond obviously student digs student halls of accommodation to live in a collaborative way with other people and it's nothing new Co-living has been done for many, many years, if not centuries. Some of the most successful communities around the world, like look at hacker villages in, in uh, the 16th century from China. You know, there were people lived in relatively small personal living areas, but did everything communally together. Uh, and they, they had thriving communities where people would last, you know, live for you know, a very long time. Uh, they could share the the chores of, you know, cooking, cleaning, and, and it would be a really sort of thriving community. So I think what's happened over the 
recent history is the idea of ownership being this absolute standard that people need to aim for you know whether it's a one bedroom flat or a three bedroom house or it's a you know semi-detached or terraced house whatever it may be the idea of ownership has really focused people's ideas for you know chasing that dream but what naturally happens when you achieve that is you then are somewhat cut off from community you then have your community with where you go to work but not necessarily where you live unless you're living with friends and family and then you're looking at sort of you know house shares and whatnot so that's really one of the key things that drew me to co-living i think the challenge that both you know ireland and, and the uk have really suffered is the idea that it's high density living and it's getting the idea of the quality of the product right to make sure that actually you're not just forcing people because of the need and the demand into substandard locations in substandard rooms. Now, I don't want to sit here and, you know, cite the housing tenant act and, and, and the sort of standards, but, you know, a, a basic bedroom, a double bedroom is sort of eight square meters in standard residential development. And people have been renting out rooms for many, many years, whether that's right or wrong is to, to be seen. But I think some of the first generation co-living that we've seen in the market is probably on the smaller side. But it is finding that right balance point between private space that gives the high quality living experience that people really enjoy and value, my place to sleep, my place to work out, my place to maybe work from home if I so choose, but also a building designed beautifully that actually it encourages serendipitous interactions. I think where you've got poor examples of co-living and communal living is where people are forced to be together. And actually, not everyone is an extrovert who lives in a co-living building. They want to feel that sense of security without being forced into doing so. So, you know, I'm I'm happy to say that there's obviously been a, an acknowledgement from, say, the Greater London Authority and local planning authorities in the UK that have started to understand and recognise the demand for this and have started to put in place and work with developers it's not always easy but working with developers on on sort of working out a standard from a design design perspective of you know what kind of sizes the rooms should be what kind of sizes the amenities should be and, and where should they should be dotted around a building so you know i think the the opportunity where we are at the moment call it generation two generation three co-living is still there's an absolute weight of demand for people getting into the rental sector as the opportunity to buy is getting further and further out of reach now I, I don't even know what the latest statistics are in terms of the cost of houses outstripping the rate of earning and obviously mortgage rates don't necessarily move and we're in a high inflationary environment so really chances of first-time buyers getting on the ladder, ladder is becoming slimmer and slimmer yeah. so renting becomes a natural alternative but i think the the market is currently benefiting sad to say, from the simple fact that people can't afford to buy. And so what that creates is this kind of high frenzied environment where you, for every apartment, be that sort of a standard block or a standard uh, studio, be it in a co-living building or a standard multifamily, where you've got maybe 25 applicants for a single apartment. Wow. Yeah. That kind of level of demand is absolutely crazy. And so... If you're a greedy developer, not to sort of get anyone's backs up, this is a great opportunity, right? Jack up the rents, there's going to be demand. People will take that from you. But then it's a question of actually, is co-living just high density profit maximization? 
or are you do you have a greater social social conscious conscious as a developer to develop a product and to deliver a solution that is more financially sustainable for your consumers and you create a sticky product that people love and they want to stay in for a long long time because you're genuinely taking care of their needs and this is where i think a lot of people thought that co-living only could work in high density city centers because of the limit limitations around space and you know the planning and design uh, constraints but actually if you design it well with the right product i.e the right price point the right level of amenity it can work anywhere because people want to live with people yeah. and that's the fundamental that needs to be remembered community exists anywhere and everywhere so i think the market's got a huge amount to mature i'm really sort of glad to to be a part of you know one of the early movers in the space and Hopefully I can continue to sort of share my, my thoughts, opinions, and voice and creating a product that people, the consumers more importantly, love, and they feel that they're looked after uh, rather than taken advantage of. I think there is an obligation and a responsibility that all those who are developing co-living and operating co-living also see the same because otherwise you'll create, you know, just a, a lopsided, very unsustainable, financially inaccessible market. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, the first time I came upon the the whole idea of co-living was, and you mentioned it already, the collective in yeah. Old Oak, uh, Reza Merchant, and mm -hmm. uh, he was incredibly successful. Very much so. I, but I understand, like over the long over the long haul, it actually didn't work out so well. Uh, I think their operations model didn't really uh, wasn't That's really right. dialed in. Is that correct? Yeah, I think. Um... You know, take nothing away from Reza Merchant and the team at the collective. They did a phenomenal job in sort of getting co-living on the map. Um, I think it was, you know, it takes a brave, you know, pioneer um to to sort of, you know, go all out and put the head above the parapet and try to do something. And naturally that will come with making some very expensive mistakes. And unfortunately, you know, the collective um you know, made some expensive mistakes predominantly around the operating model. Uh, I wasn't at the foot of the bed, so I, I, I'll reserve comment. But I think the 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 concept was not wrong. The execution and the the business model around the way in which the operating uh, costs were structured, yes, that could have been improved. And I think this is where you've seen a massive emergence in um, white label operators. So if, um, that's basically if I have a building of maybe two to three hundred co-living units, it doesn't make sense for me to build my own operating platform because the cost of people, energy, and all of that is not going to be value accretive to running that building efficiently. Yeah. But you are seeing now operators who do have several thousand units under operation that they are working with different brands. So they can be the faceless brand, a faceless machine behind the brand. And this is where you're starting to see, you know, certain generation two, generation three co-living that are becoming a lot more successful because they've learned from those mistakes. And it is people like Reza Merchant who kind of paved the way for success for a lot of others to learn from them from, from his mistakes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a huge amount of credit and respect for, for him for, for doing that. And uh, Saf, you mentioned that you talk about this kind of stuff. I mean, do you actually write about this? Could people follow your content if they if they wanted to learn more about this kind of thing? Yeah, there's. Uh, I, I would love to write more, and it's one of my uh, resolutions and goals to do more and share more. Uh, I do have some content on my LinkedIn page of uh, articles that I've posted over the over the recent years. 
Um, my Instagram is sort of get up, getting up and running as well. So people can follow me on Instagram also. And also if people are interested in, in diving into some specifics about my journey, I'm very open and happy to be contacted directly also. And Zaf, just, I mean, we'll, we'll bring it to an end now. I, I'm conscious of the time. I'm, I'm thinking, I, I usually ask this question of people who are a bit older. And so this might, <laughs> this might kind of uh, not make a huge, huge amount of sense, but you know, you're, what age are you now? I'm uh, just the right side of 40, Gavin. I'll turn 40 next year. Okay. Well then I think you're, this is a, this question will work for you. Take us, you know, knowing now what you know um, and all of the experience you've gained and everything like that. If you had an opportunity to speak to 20 year old Zaf, what advice would you give? I would say that it's okay not to be okay. I think I grew up with this need and this idea to conform and to be okay and to show that I was okay. Um, and that was painful and challenging and needing to suppress who I was um, and naturally had an impact on reaching out for help, whether that was with peers, be they professional or personal. Um, and I think it's one of the things I try to, I'm very grateful to have three beautiful children that I tell my oldest, my son, who's 10, that it's okay not to be okay. It's okay if you need help. Um, and actually, one of the most courageous things anyone can do is to ask for help. And, you know, like any young, young gun, you know, you want to try and demonstrate that you can figure this out on your own. And that's okay if you can't. Um, and I think people can make greater progress by learning from those around them and asking simple questions, often the dumb question. And I say this all the time, but sometimes I'm, I never take my own advice. There's no such thing as a stupid question. Brilliant. I think that's a, a great way to finish our conversations off. Uh, thanks so much for your time today. I'm going Thank to you. put a link to your LinkedIn and, and your various kind of uh, social media things. Uh, is there anything else that you want to add before we close out the conversation? Um, I'm extremely grateful for the opportunity to speak with you, Gavin. You've had some phenomenal guests on the podcast so far, so I'm grateful to be a part of the journey. Um, and I think, you know, just to leave listeners and viewers with the idea of, you know, following passions and try to do the work to understand what your goal in life is, what your, vi what your vision is, what your why is, and always check every step along the way. Am I living my why? Am I, is what I'm doing in accordance with my values. And I think the moment you start to feel a deviation from that is the moment you need to either get some help, get some advice, or check your strategy. And we'll leave it at that. Thank you, Saf. Thank you so much. Much appreciated. Guys, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Zaf. Anyone facing any kind of difficulties like this, it's really important that you go out and seek help. Don't try to deal with it by yourself if it's starting to get on top of you. There's no embarrassment and there's no shame in seeking help. And it is, as Saf said, it's okay not to be okay. And uh, I've experienced this myself. I can remember, you guys are well aware of my difficulties back after 2008. I can remember facing into this situation and I can remember what a dark place it can be. And so seeking help is the way to go about it. And uh, don't be that person who kind of thinks that you can weather the storm. You know, it's no harm just going out there and just 
getting a bit of help, uh, somebody just to listen if that's, um, if that's all it takes. So guys, wishing you all a very peaceful and prosperous next uh, weekend. And until next time, take care. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Behind the Facade. If you have any questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, please connect with me via the Facebook group that is called Behind the Facade Community. Alternatively, you will find me on social media. My handle is Gavin J. Gallagher. You can stay up to date with all of my content and the various projects I'm working on over on my website, GavinJGallagher.com. And while you're there, please do add your name to the join my tribe thing over on the right hand side this will ensure you're kept up to date via my weekly newsletter all of these links are in the show notes below that's all for now i will see you guys in the next episode